This is Yudaha Kohen, Vision Movement, Vision Magazine, and you're listening to the Next Stage Podcast. Tensions within Israel are still pretty high surrounding the issue of judicial reform. And uh, I recently saw a very interesting article by Ariel Be'eri, really coming from the other side, really coming from the perspective of opposition to these reforms, but also articulating what he thinks the people of Israel need to do uh, in order to move past this this incredibly polarizing moment in our history. Uh, so I decided to reach out to him and invite him onto the show. Ariel has co-founded and led three Israel-based social ventures over the past couple decades with a focus on bringing medical tech to emerging economies. But he also has deep roots in the Zionist movement, uh, specifically Hashomar Tzair, and I think his perspective is an interesting one to share with our listeners. Ariel, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Um, before we get into it, I'd like to give you a chance to kind of share your background with our listeners, people know where you're coming from, and then we'll get into uh, some of the things that I guess are shaking up Israeli society today. Sure, sure. So, uh, so first of all, it's, it's wonderful to be here. Uh, my name is Ariel Biri. I spent the past 20 years building organizations um, in Israel uh, that that focus on what I what I consider the realization of the potential of the people of Israel uh, in their role abroad. So I started off in 2005 founding an organization called Present Tense, which is the creative Zionist movement. Uh, Present Tense started as a magazine and a journal to explore. Uh, the questions of how uh, we as a people can add value to the world and extend our our ability to to fulfill our collective destiny. And uh, we built uh, through that a, a network of social venture accelerators. Uh, we had a, at our height uh, 14. Out of that, a little over uh, 1,500 ventures um, launched all over the world in Israel and in the United States and Eastern Europe. Um, after that, I, I uh, while I was still the CEO of that and uh, and, and ran that, I, I founded a med tech company in women's health, uh, focusing on ending cervical cancer in emerging markets, uh, with the goal of uh, of changing the way that uh, Israeli technology is applied, not just in the United States or Europe, but but to save lives across Africa, Latin America, Asia. And uh, and when that company uh, was acquired uh, during the beginning of the pandemic, I, I founded a new company to help. Uh, emerging markets access medical technologies that they need to to solve their most pressing needs, and so uh, I've kind of spent the past twenty years doing that. But but from a roots perspective, I'm I am third generation Hashomer uh, Tzair. Hashomer Tzair was the first uh, of the uh, youth movements started up as Siretzi on on from based on the ideas of Martin Buber, then um, merged with Hashomer, which was a, uh, a security organization here in the land of Israel. My grandparents were one of the first chapters of that are what's called a ken and they came to israel and founded uh, kibbutzim uh, my parents grew up on kibbutzim i grew up in new york city and and was uh the uh, first the, the head of the new york chapter and then the head of the national movement in the united states and then came to israel to join join a kibbutz um that uh to to uh, live out those values and since then i've you know became more traditional i, I keep shabbat I keep it um i do so though from a perspective of uh more of the the, the philosophy of uh, of Buber Chadaam and Mordechai Kaplan, but uh, but definitely uh, with a deep deep perspective tradition. I have, I have a master's degree in Jewish philosophy and another in Jewish history and another one in uh, in, in public administration. So I, I tend to look at 
um, the traditions of our, our people as a impetus for action and a catalyst for uh, the fulfillment of our responsibility as uh, as uh, representatives of uh, the eternal in this world. I can already tell that this is going to be a fascinating conversation. I hope so. We'll find out. <laughs> your, your listeners will be the judge. Right. The truth is, I don't know where to start. Uh, you know, I brought you on to really have a conversation about a piece you wrote recently. But I think just, you know, some of the things you mentioned just now definitely uh, require some maybe elaboration. You know, also, I, you know, I definitely come from the perspective that uh, the Jewish people ultimately uh, have a role to play on the world stage, have uh, a gift to give humanity. You know, when you spoke about your work with present tense um, and, and even, you know, practically speaking, the, the work you've been doing in terms of bringing greater access to, you know, to crucial medical technologies, to emerging markets, you're clearly focused on, um, for lack of a better term, we can say Israel as an orlegoyim, Israel as a light unto nations, Israel as benefiting humankind you know through our newfound independence you know we spent 2000 years in gas form we're back in solid form now for the first time in a long time uh, and every time we've had power in history we've benefited human civilization um this time we don't appear to be there yet meaning it feels like we're still kind of stuck as a society as a people in self-preservation mode in kind of this bunker mentality um, that uh, Zionism has been about us, about, you know, changing our situation. And clearly our, our situation needed changing. Mm -hmm. But just from the way you introduced yourself and, and your background, it's clear you already have an eye towards what the success of Zionism can mean, not just for our people, but really for all peoples. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I agree with you mostly. There, there's certain parts that I, I would look at it a little differently. So... You know, I, I believe that um, that the entire arc of our history has been a uh, an experience of learning and growth, and so mm -hmm. I think that our our time in in exile and in the diaspora has been uh, has been as valuable for our people as. Uh, our time also in the land. And, you know, we, we don't have to go far for that, right? I mean, you know, we know that other than Yitzchak, all the Avot spent their time uh, growing and learning and, and becoming outside of the land of Israel. And and none of our Avot and, and none of our heroes really ever had the opportunity to live peaceful uh, lives on the land. You know, it's it's one of those things where I think that that I, this is where I come more from the from the perspective of uh, Chada'am and uh, and even Mordechai Kaplan, where Mordechai Kaplan talks about the land of Israel as a uh, a musical instrument upon which the musical the Jewish genius can uh, perfect his craft. Mm -hmm. You know, we have once we have sovereignty, we have the ability to show what we can really do when we're when we're uh, freed from the requirements and restrictions of other majorities. And I think that the problem is, is that we've, and I, this is where you and I, I think, agree, where I think the problem is that we have yet to uh, to, to, to be okay with that, meaning we, we kind of grasp on to a lot of the cultural and uh, political and economic assumptions that were developed you know, through our lives among other peoples, instead of, you know, starting from the very basics of saying, how do we want, what do we believe to be the right way for, for us to live in, 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 in the spirit of the prophets? And, and then based on that, what are the values that we, what are the lessons we've learned over, over time that should influence how we build political systems, how we build an economy, how we act on the world stage? And how do we shine our light? Because, 
you know, as we know, you know, a light never shines alone in the darkness or it shouldn't, right? There are tons of different cultures and traditions out there that have their own uniqueness that they can shine. And we just need to ensure, you know, we, sh we should respect their lights and we should shine our light in, in tandem because it should be the job of, of all of God's creatures to, to provide the value they can to, to the orchestra of creation. And that's very well said. Uh, I, I think the kids that were talking about a shift from focusing on narrow Jewish nationalism, uh, which I think was an important focus for a long time, just based on our situation, um, to a uniquely Jewish universalism. Like now that we have self-determination, now that we, in whatever terminology you want to use, now that we can play that instrument with our genius, you know, like we can say that uh, figures like uh, Marx and Einstein and Freud were, were merely the clearing of the throat compared to what Israel has to say now that it's back on its land, now that it's able to really be itself, now that we're able to rebuild our civilization and shine out. And I think a lot of what we're seeing in society is that tension, meaning the tension between those who uh, haven't really shifted from the focus on narrow Jewish national fulfillment and those who really uh, have already come to the realization that, uh, you know, we're living in a world with other people and we need to think about what this means for the rest of humanity, not just for ourselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm with you. And I think that, you know, <laughs> I mean, now now we can start perhaps getting into into the, the core of things. But I think, I think that in the Torah and, and you know, there's going to be different, I think, we're going to have disagreement in terms of how we think about the Torah itself and 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 in general the corpus of thought that makes up the the, the core of the Tanakh and and our work. But but we may agree that uh, that the Torah itself has a lot of wisdom to share on this. That is, I think that one of the big reasons that the Torah, uh, you know, again and again reminds us that we were strangers in a stranger's land, and and because of that we need to treat the stranger as we want we would want to be treated ourselves, is because it, it recognizes that. Uh, all peoples around the world are dealing with this struggle of trying to to self-determine um, and differentiate and and become themselves. And, and but in doing so, it's very easy to fall into a chauvinist, you know, a nationalistic view in which we are better than others. And I think that the, the a way for us to free ourselves from those shackles is to recognize that we were the underdog and we will not treat the underdog as we were treated. And that frees us to be able to. To, to shine our light without needing to constantly reference the other, right? It, it allows us to say, we're going to make sure we, we're going to create the baseline for everyone to be able to, to, to live their values in a way that is reflective of, of their unique contribution to, to the world in which we live. Um, and, and, and we understand that anyone's desire to coerce another into living in a way that doesn't, doesn't reflect their values is inherently problematic. It's inherently brings us back to the Tzarut HaMitzrayim, to the, to the restrictions of, of an empire. I agree with that. I'm I'm not sure that's the the whole essence of uh, what we're leaving behind. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> a little simplistic to say it would be right. I, I'm sorry if I made it sound like that would be the whole essence. No, no but I, I I think that's there. I definitely see that as present uh, in the message. And I, I guess I, I'll lay out how I understand this. You know, I think Zionism was a very successful revolutionary movement that radically changed the situation of the Jewish people for good. I think it was a movement that was able to really inspire uh, the hearts and minds of our youth, you know, certainly a hundred years ago, 
because it was aspiring towards real uh, significant social and political change. I think that since 1967, for sure, some might argue since 1948, but I would say since 1967, Zionism has stopped aspiring to any kind of social or political change. I think to be a Zionist today is, is really just to defend the existence and policies of a specific nation state uh, to champion a status quo. Uh, I don't see a lot of revolutionary movement towards any kind of real political or social change. And I think as a result, that revolutionary uh, impulse that exists within so many of our people had to find other channels, had to find other right. you know means of fulfillment. And, and I think that the questions that we as a people need to ask ourselves weren't asked. You know, once we, yeah. on two fronts, first of all, what we've been talking about already in terms of what does our revolution mean beyond ourselves? Like, what does this mean? The Jewish people coming home after 2000 years, like, what does that mean for human history? Uh, because it does mean something for human history. It has meaning. Um, and I and I think that meaning could be could be very exciting for some people. It would be very scary for others. But it, it has to mean something that the ancient Israelites actually came back to life two thousand years after having been destroyed, in a way that no other ancient identity came back to life. Meaning, totally. you know, the the Moabites, um, you know, coming back and retaking their ancient land and reviving their language. You don't see the you know the Philistines doing that. Although that you know that might be a question to revisit. You know, from a Kabbalistic perspective, uh, all these national identities might have spiritual backends, which could theoretically manifest in our world, you know, not through their biological descendants. Like, like for example, you know, we speak a lot about uh, Amalek, you know, especially in the last couple of weeks, right? Amalek is an identity, you know, it is like the arch enemy that our ancestors faced in biblical times. Um, we know Amalek to be the grandson of Esav, is an extreme expression of Esav. And even though today we might not have any clue who Amalek is biologically, uh, we could say that uh, our sages identify Western civilization as the civilization of Esav in the same way that our sages identify Islamic civilization as the civilization of Ishmael. Uh, but if Western civilization is a civilization of Esav, that means that the most militant subgroup within Western civilization, you know, in this case, white nationalists would be Amalek. Like we, right. can, we can still identify the essence of what Amalek is shining into our world. And I think that's why it's so easy for people to say, oh, like the Nazis were Amalek. But right. that doesn't necessarily mean that their biological descendants, the residents of Germany today are Amalek. It means that that force of, of white nationalism could manifest somewhere else and still be the spiritual back end, or, you know, you work in tech. So the code of Amalek shining into the front end through a different identity. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. W where I was going with that was a good question. <laughs> well, I think, I think what you're saying, which I, I agree with is that there's something, or I don't know if you're saying this, but what I took out of what you're saying is that there is something that can and should be beautiful about ancient people's, um, uh, reasserting their independent view of the world and uh, and trying to uh, uh, to to remind the world that there isn't just one hegemonic way to live. 
And there's a great book uh, that came out recently uh, called The Dawn of Everything by David, David Graeber and, and uh, David Wengrove that, uh, that goes through the anthropology, the archaeology and anthropology of different types of civilizations that live differently. You know, we're always, not always, but since I was a kid, I don't know how it was for you or for your listeners, we were told that, you know, history was a progression, an evolution towards a more perfect form of society. And that, therefore, kind of Western capitalism, liberal capitalism is, you know, is it's it's the best of all worlds because, you know, we've had this Darwinian evolution of social systems. And what uh, the dawn of everything does is it shows that that's not necessarily the case. There were different ways to live. Right. There were different ways to think about property and society and community and leadership and political uh, power and authority. And, you know, I think we see that very clearly also when uh, when when the people of Israel came to uh, the prophet uh, Shmuel and, and asked him for a king. And he's like, yeah, that's not that's not the way we do things around here. And they say, no, we, we want a king. We want to be like everyone else. And Shmuel says, well, that's that's going to be a problem for you. And God says, don't worry about it. You know, th this is a rejection of me, not of you. Just give them what they want. Let's see how they deal with it. And and we all know what happened since then. A lot of bad things and, and leading to the exile of our people. So I think that you know, Zionism could be a way for us to reassert the fact that there is a different way to live. There is a different way to structure society, to structure uh, property, to think about happiness, to think about fulfillment, to think about what uh, what our aims of an economy should be. And we failed to do that. Like I agree with you, we've failed to do that because we've gotten so wrapped up in the uh, in, in the partisan nature of collective life that, in many ways, was a uh, uh, an imitation of, and 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 even today, especially more than anything else, is a reflection of the partisan bickering and power politics of countries from which we've come. And then that's that's my biggest concern is that we we have lost touch with who we could be and who we 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 should be we are only focused on what we can save out of the now right so i would look at zionism as essentially uh the zionist movement uh, again I, I think it's important not to be anachronistic not to retroactively apply the term zionism to you know the maccabim and the yeah I, I think there's a tendency to do that uh, that we should push back against uh but absolutely but Zionism was a movement that started, you know, in a specific place at a specific time to address uh, specific issues that the Jewish people in that place and time were, were faced with. And I think it's legitimate to view Zionism as a Jewish flavor of 19th century European nationalism, as a Jewish version of the nationalism that was exploding throughout Europe at the time. Um, it doesn't mean it's all it was or all it could be, but I think that's kind of how it was constructed, at least initially. And, you know, Zionism accomplished, you know, revolutionary feats and things that we've wanted for thousands of years, things that we told ourselves three times a day we wanted for thousands of years. But, you know, at the same time, what it created, I think the state of Israel as it exists right now is essentially a European style nation state with jewish decorations and those yeah. th those jewish decorations are in many cases too jewish for the non-jews living here uh, and also not jewish enough for the haredim for a lot of the national religious community and i think that every people that achieves liberation really needs to go through a post-colonial conversation 
you know, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the writings of Franz Fanon. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. Wretched of the Earth is a good place to start. But to, to really understand that any, you know, any people that achieves liberation really needs to go through this post-colonial conversation. We never did that. Um, yeah. You know, you, you can push back, you know, the way I understand what took place here was the Lehi, essentially, uh, started a war with the British Empire. You know, the fighters for the freedom of Israel launched an anti-colonial struggle against the British. Uh, eventually, they succeeded in dragging the Etzel into that conflict and maybe even the Haganah and the Palmach for a short period of time. But, you know, in 1948, they made the British leave. The British left, according to British documents, uh, as a result of Jewish terrorism. But when the British left, the Zionist movement, uh, which had not fought the British for the most part, the Zionist movement, you know, basically put a Jewish flag on a British colonial system, called it a Jewish state, and never even bothered to engage in this post-colonial conversation. Uh, in fact, even the initial, um, and this brings us to our current crisis, because even the uh, initial intention to create a constitution during the first Knesset just never happened, it partially as a result of us avoiding the crucial conversations we need to have. We need to acknowledge what happened to us, uh, the trauma we came home with, because we came home with a lot of trauma, especially Ashkenazi Jews, you know, centuries and centuries and centuries of traumatic persecution had an effect on us and still has an effect on us and even has an effect on the way we treat other people. We never really had a conversation about the type of society we want to create. What is the identity? What are the values that will be expressed through the policies and institutions? Uh, even this question of minority rights, like what is the ideal role of a non-Jew in a Jewish society? Or as you mentioned, what does a Jewish economy look like? You know, uh, how do you create a real Jewish economy that expresses our identity and values? And for lack of doing that, it feels like the conversations we're having or the debates we're having in society are arguments over whether we're going to accept or reject the Western models of minority rights or other things, you know. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, I'll, I'll, agree, I'll agree with you on a few. I just want to, you know, so my history, the history that I have learned and, you know, my family's history is very different than the one that you said about, you know, the the, uh, the rebellion against the British. Uh, you know, my family was here under the British. My, my grandfather built... Uh, the in in the workshop of Kibbutz Beit Alpha that he was a member built the Chumah Migdal the uh, the the tower and the wall that uh, they put up in the middle of the night for uh, for uh, Kibbutz Ner David right next next door you know I mean my so you know my family's experience of the war against the British and and British independence from the British uh, is different than the one that you said I think you know I I recognize the role. That Lehi and Etzel had, you know, Haganan Palmach uh, fought very pitched battles uh, and 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 did a lot of work in order to um, and to to to, uh, to fight for independence. But with that said, I want to I want to also uh, add that um, the Kibbutzim of uh, Hashomer Atzeil they they did have a different vision uh, for society. Um, however, um, and this is where kind of the the I think, you know, with the past is past, we can argue about it. Different people have different stories of history. The fact is that we're here today and we're living the life we're living is that a lot of a lot of the very uh, spiritual and reconstitutive uh, efforts of the early years of uh, of the 
of, of the Zionist movement that was not the political Zionist movement, which I want to separate between kind of Herzl, Herzlian politics and political uh, Zionism and the more kind of, you know, um, I'd say uh, class struggle version of uh, Mapai, of Ben Gurion. Uh, on the edges in the kibbutzim that I, you know, I grew up in, uh, I, there was another, there was a different vision. That vision failed, however. I, I want to say very clear, that vision failed. It, it did not succeed in becoming the last of the Jews and the first of the Hebrews, which was the famous uh, um, statement by Berdachevsky. It, we uh, did not succeed in beating back Western consumerist society. We we were beaten by it. Now there are some kibbutzim that are wonderful even still today, where life is lived differently and people, you know, have different aspirations and success is measured differently. But but that has not become the general culture of of Israel. And I agree with you that right now we're arguing over um, over uh, questions of uh, of law and 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 order that are foundationally. Uh, practical in nature. They're not value-based. There's no. I have not yet seen a leader in Israel uh, get up and say, the reason we want to build this kind of an institution is because it will allow us to live out these values. Like, I haven't seen that. And and uh, and maybe that's my lack of uh, of perspective. But I have not yet seen someone do what you said right now, which is to say, you know, what are the institutions we need to be able to live at our values? That that to, to go back to the article that you mentioned that I wrote. That that's that's what I've been trying to push for uh, for for a number of years, which is to try to go back to the very stories that have constituted us as a people and to understand. Uh, what it is it that we should be achieving, and then based on that, develop the institutions and the frameworks that will let us lead us there or enable us to to go there. I think that's very well said, and and I think that is the project. And you know, Ruby Rivlin, our former president, has a famous speech where he speaks about the four tribes of Israel. I feel more comfortable talking about the twelve tribes of Israel uh, because Same. yeah, and and I think that a, a lot of the problem with these political conversations uh, currently is that we're using frameworks that don't suit us. You know, concepts like liberal and conservative or uh, secular and religious or even right and left, these are framings that grew out of another civilization. Um, yep. They're very connected, you know, to, um, to Greco-Roman thought, to Christian dogma, to the revolutionary transition between feudalism and capitalism. Um, they mean something very deep in Western civilization, but they're very shallow when applied to our people. And I think, you know, it, it makes more sense for us to really look at the different groups within Israeli society as modern expressions, just like I mentioned before with Amalek and white nationalism. You know, when we look at Israeli society today, we can see, or, or the broader Jewish world, we can see different tribal forces uh, expressing themselves through different socio-political groups. And I think, you know, the two major leadership tribes we see uh, among the tribal identities are really Yosef and Yehuda. Uh, and, you know, in, in my camp, in the, I guess I'm in the Yehuda camp, we tend to look at the Zionist movement as the movement of Mashiach ben Yosef. There's a, a famous book uh, that was written by one of the students. It's actually our former president, Ruby Rivlin's great-great-great-grandfather. He was a student of the Gon of Vilna, and uh, he wrote down the, the Vilna Gon's teachings on Mashiach ben Yosef. 
And and basically what it comes down to is that Mashiach ben Yosef is the physical, material rebuilding of the nation of Israel and its land without the content, the spiritual content, without the ideological direction, without knowing what it's for, just building the vessel. And Mm -hmm. basically, you know, we understand Yosef, the character of Yosef, the concept of Yosef, the tribe of Yosef, as a, a tribe that is very good at managing the material world, building states, building economies, building armies, very much looking for our place among the nations, very much um, focused on what we share in common with other civilizations, especially dominant civilizations at any given period, whether it's Egypt in the time of Yosef, whether it's Greece in the time of uh, the Maccabean Revolt, um, or if we even if we look at uh, the Kingdom of Israel, you know, which after the kingdom split following uh, the death of Shlomo, you know, the Kingdom of Israel was the dominant kingdom. It was more economically, militarily, diplomatic, yeah. more powerful, but it was also much more susceptible to foreign influence. Uh, whereas the Kingdom of Judah, Judah as a force, represents what's unique about Israel, what's different about us, our Torah, our temple, our Jerusalem, our prophecy, our destiny, etc. You know, Yehuda, we consider often to be the more important kingdom because we descend from it and, and because it had the Davidic dynasty in Jerusalem, etc. But but at that time, you know, the kingdom of Yehuda was really a, a landlocked desert kingdom that had very little impact on the world, whereas the kingdom of Israel was really interacting with the international community. And, and I think these two forces are very much in conflict today. Yeah, um, I think that Yehuda is like the Jewish particularist force, and Yosef is a more universalist force. And and I think when you when you take, for example, any social or political issue, um, and I think this really gets at the core of the tension within Israeli society today, or or even the broader Jewish world. When you take any social or political issue, a Jew who's expressing the tribal force of Yosef will look at it and say, well, what is the right moral thing to do according to the most enlightened, the most morally advanced civilization in the world today? Uh, Whereas somebody from Yehuda might look at that same social or political issue and say, well, what would our ancestors in the Tanakh do in this situation? How would they deal with this? And that's the right thing to do. And I think that uh, both find the other to be quite scary. I think most Yosef Jews look at Yehuda as dangerously out of touch with the modern world and very chauvinistic uh, and ethnocentric. And I think that most Yehuda Jews look at Yosef as kind of like weak Jews, not deeply connected to their own roots, um, borderline traitors at certain points. I, I think they also, both of these tribes have their extreme expressions. Like, for example, I would say Don is the extreme expression of Yosef. Uh, Don would be Jews involved in the BDS movement or Israeli Jews who vote for Palestinian parties on election day. Whereas Yuda also has like Shimon and Levi, you know, like Shimon are the Jews who attacked uh, Huara a couple of weeks ago. Shimon are the Kahanistim. And we could say maybe Levi is the Kav, you know, like Haramor and the, the more intellectual extreme expressions of Yuda. Uh, and Yisachar are the Haredim, you know, Jews who just love Torah, want to teach Torah, learn Torah, but aren't really interested in getting involved in politics and, and all of that. And, and I think when you look at Israeli society through the lens of these different tribal identities, it, you end up with something much more accurate than when you try to impose the Western linear political spectrum on our society.
Because yeah. with, with that linear spectrum, where do you put the Palestinian parties? Where do you put the Haredim? Um, where do you put the national religious? Uh, I would actually argue that the what's called the religious Zionist party, uh, led by Batella Smotrich, isn't really a Zionist party. It's something else. Yeah. I, I would say Zionism is um, the political movement of Yosef. And today, as you expressed in your piece, there is a difference between Zionism and this other thing that we see uh, dominating the current government. And the question is maybe trying to understand what that thing is. Yeah, I um, so like I, I'm going to challenge you on on uh, on part of part of the way that we tell our tale, right? I mean, um, I have I <laughs> I have for many years uh, become an anti-Davidist. Uh, um, you know, from from my perspective, uh, the Davidic dynasty and the whole concept of uh, of Mashiach ben David is a uh, was a mistake. It was a mistake. It was a rejection of our of our traditions. It was a rejection of God. It was a rejection of uh, Shmuel. It was a, a process by which we wanted to be like everyone else, and it led to our destruction and exile. That, that's my perspective on it. And you know, I, I evidence it through uh, Shmuel, and evidence it through just the, the general tradition of our people to of any people to allow uh, history to be written by the victors. And when you you know when you when you go back into um, into the question as to where you know, where we were at that moment as a people and how we ended up um, how we ended up as a as a kingdom at war with itself and then after we broke apart after Shlomo at war with ourselves uh, as two separate groups I think that was a tragedy and 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 I'm concerned that we're we're heading in that same direction that we were so adamant to build a nation state that had that was like everyone else with a parliament like everyone else. Um, that we are now seeing history in many ways repeat itself. You know, I, I like to say that history itself doesn't repeat itself, but but relationship patterns do. And and we're in this moment of a relationship pattern where, like you said, and I agree with you, we have so many different uh, types of subcultures, uh, peoples who come from different places around the world who were who were um, uh, who were baked in. Uh, local traditions and came to understand their Jewish identity in different ways and are now being soldered together um, and, and without respecting our our uniqueness and our, our unique contribution to each other, not let alone the world. And so, uh, you know, my my hope would be that uh, we would come to a place where we recognize that 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 the United Kingdom was a mistake. And that the to, to create a united government in Israel, a single government here in Israel, is a mistake. I think we need to come to a place where we are living um, in in at peace with our diversity, recognizing the beauty of of the of the the children of Yaakov, um, and by, by the way, recognizing the beauty of the children of Abraham. You know, when when we look through when we reread the stories of of Abraham and the relationship that developed between Itzchak and Ishmael and 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 onwards, um, you know, yeah, there were there were bad apples, right? I mean, you know, Amalek came from within us, um, but there are bad apples. There are always going to be bad apples. Uh, you know, as you said, Shimon was not a favorite son by any means. <laughs> you know, there, there are going to be people that are going to they're they're going to go against our values, and we're going to have to do our best to either stop them or or to to show them the door. 
Um, but you know, but but I think that uh, that if we continue to think of ourselves in the framework of Mashiach ben David, I think that we're we're going to be in 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 serious trouble. And and that reminds me, by the way, of the of the of the debate between Zerav uh, and Ishmael. I think it was, um, or Rabbi uh, Ishmael, on on what is uh, what is the Olam Abba. Um, you know, Olam Abba, the, the world to come, the world we are building, the world that we can bring. Um, in my opinion, I'm on the side that that the Rambam took. I, I think that the Olam Abba is the world in which we are free from the constructs of other nations. Now, we don't need to live in a centralized, controlling state. I think that we we have the opportunity as a people. We have the traditions as a people. We have the values as a people. We have the the, the potential as a people to show the world that that life can be lived differently. It doesn't need to be lived in in the pursuit of commodification. It doesn't need to be lived at growth at any cost. It doesn't need to be lived um, as a center for power politics and 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 conquest. It can be lived from a place of 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 true freedom and devotion to to the to the greater good. So, first of all, when you talk about um, the core point you're making is like other nations, right? The core point you're making right. in terms of where we've went wrong historically and where we might be going wrong today is trying to create or just mimic the structures of others. Meaning, when we speak about the issue with the nation demanding a king from Shmuel like all other nations, that's the problematic part, like all other nations. Meaning, we actually had a mitzvah from Sefer Dvarim to appoint a king. You know, the Rambam brings it in the beginning of, uh, you know, what you just quoted from the Rambam is from Hilchot Melachim in the very beginning. We could have an argument about that, but yes, I, I, I acknowledge the fact that there's been interpretations of that direction as well. Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm not sure Melech and King are exactly the same thing because sometimes uh, the essence of yes. the concept exactly. gets, gets lost in translation into English. Um, so Melech could mean something very different, I think. Well, from a Kabbalistic perspective, the Melech is really like what what's called the Nefesh Klali. It's like the national soul concentrated in one person and all the personal is kind of nullified to the national needs and he's just kind of living his people's story. It's hard to find such an individual, but the concept of Melech is not one of ruler, so to speak. It's it's more of leader, like just, you know, the fact that when we go to war, the Melech goes in the front. He doesn't stay behind walking orders. Um, but yes, the, the idea is that trying to be like other nations gets us into trouble. And, and I think that's essentially the mistake a lot of us are making today. And I think that, you know, the friction I pointed out before between Yosef and Yehuda between, let's say, liberal Western Israel and Jewish Eastern Israel, I think ultimately that friction can be uh, resolved if we're able to dig deep into Jewish culture and Jewish philosophy and Jewish identity and find answers for modern issues that are uniquely Jewish, but can compete with the Western answers on their own ideological turf. Right. And I think that's something we haven't done. That's a project that we haven't really approached. And that's wh where the answer is. I mean, that's where Hebrew universalism will come from when we're actually able to find, you know, universal answers that are deeply Jewish, that come yeah. from us and are not just yeah. us trying to, you know, usurp somebody else's uh, that don't necessarily fit us. And it's not just us. I would say, you know, India, for example, has the same problem. You know, India has a very 
unstable political system because it's also a British colonial system that they just adopted once they achieved independence. Yeah. We've never challenged. And, and I think that might be the calling of this generation to really, you know, say, wait a minute, we actually need to go through this process. We need to really have this conversation. I, I in your article, um, you, you point out that, you know, these new structures we need to create might need to be federal, right? We need to maybe each tribe will have some level of autonomy and and not necessarily be living under one centralized authority. Right. Right. And, I, you know, I, so I want to point out that there are a few projects that have have been in this direction that I've I've very much appreciated. You know, one being the uh, the project of Mishpata Ivri that's been, you know, uh, going since the since before the beginning of the state that uh, has uh, has has in my opinion, very, uh, um, I don't say it in English for some reason, I only have the word in Hebrew. Like I appreciate very much that it's, it's been conducted as a dialogue between people of different, uh, uh religious traditions. And I think that that's, that's an important aspect here that I, I want to emphasize, which is that, you know, um, oftentimes secular people and as well as Orthodox people tend to think that the people who understand what our traditions are, are the people who learn Torah in a certain way, learn Talmud in a certain way, are conversant in the text in a certain way. And I'm not sure that that's true. And I think that even if you look at the work, um, if you look at the conversations between the Amoraim and the Tanaim, you see that practice and minhag makom is almost as important as as text because text can always be interpreted and reinterpreted. And so I think that, that one of the reasons that I advocate for thinking more on a decentralized manner, you know, going back to the to this idea of twelve tribes, each of us with 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 a place in which we can live and and live in, in our interpretation is is out of recognition that there are seventy faces of the Torah. There are many there are many different ways to think of our tradition, and it is wrong, in my opinion, to say that one is authentic or one is uh, is inauthentic. I think that 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 the the wrestling with our tradition and the commitment to having our actions uh, be uh, an extension of our values and then uh, recognizing what are those values and bearing bearing those assumptions to, out so that we can we can dialogue around them. I think that's critical. And I think there's a lot also to be said about having the tribes converse with one another, um, but out of a place of mutual respect as opposed to a sense of hierarchy. So one is the the, the work of Mishpat Evri. The second is this, this wonderful uh, series of the Jewish political tradition by Walzer, um, and 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 a lot of the work by um, uh, by his uh, his cohort of of uh, people who have who've looked into different uh, Jewish political traditions and economic traditions. Ariel Aron Alevi, I think, is his name. He did a wonderful job of that as well. Um, and and I think we need to make space for that conversation. But I, I don't think we'll be able to do it until we create uh, the the institutions that are open to that because at this stage like you said you know we've adopted civil and criminal and economic structures that are 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 based on what everyone else did and i'm not saying we need to you know overthrow them overnight but i do think that we need to have a ongoing and uh and and uh, uh and dedicated conversation among the citizenry and that's why i'm such a supporter of citizens assemblies because i think that if we if we if we start creating the national 
institutions to allow for conversations among our citizenry. We we make those be value-based conversations and we lead those value-based conversations to reflect on policy decisions. And that I think that that conversation itself can lead for lead towards a redefinition of what it means to be Israeli in in, in the in the Hebrew sense of the word, uh, you know, from from the people of Israel. So I'm going to push back on something you said. I'm going to say yes and no. Even in ancient times, there were different subcultures and even different halachot, let's say, for the tribe of Shimon and the tribe of Reuven and the tribe of Levi and the tribe of Yisachar, meaning every tribe kind of uh, developed with their own batei din, their own, you know, rabbinic leadership. And halacha, you know, the Torah is not static, it's dynamic, it evolves. And it would evolve differently for all the different tribes in the same way that we can say uh, today, for example, I'm Ashkenazi, I cannot heat up soup on Shabbat morning, um, but our managing director is a Yemenite, she can uh, heat up soup on Shabbat morning, right? Meaning, so even in ancient times, these distinctions existed, there were different ways for Jews to live halakha, you know, or Israelites, let's say, different ways for the different Israelite tribes to, to live halakha. Uh, and I think that manifests today as well. Um, but but I think there are also aspects of our, when we talk about authenticity or, or non-authenticity, we also have to acknowledge that we're a deeply colonized people, meaning we experienced many, 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 many layers of colonization. And, and when I say that, I'm, I'm speaking specifically about the ways in which our culture, identity, practices changed as a direct result of external coercion. I don't mean things that changed like... Oh, yeah, no. I'm with you. Rosh Hashanah is a great example of that, right? Rosh Hashanah was Yom Tuah. It was the New Year in Bavel. The ram's horn was what they used as a as a uh, as a uh, offering to their polytheistic god. We took that and turned it into our New Year in order to placate them, even though it's the sixth month for us, right? I mean, absolutely. Well, that I disagree with too. Oh, partially disagree, only because I think our cal. <laughs> Well, well, our calendar is unique. You know, in, in the ancient world, the Egyptians had a solar calendar, the Babylonians had a lunar calendar, and yeah, Kibalti. I, I I accept that. Yeah, I think that there's you're right. Even using the term New Year is anachronistic or colonialistic in many ways. We didn't think of it in that same way. I, I can agree with you on that, but but well, the, well, but I, we can agree that the holiday of Rosh Hashanah didn't exist, well, right? Well, I mean, we created that. Well, it's Yom Tru on the Torah. But but also our calendar has a national and an international component. I think the lunar aspects of our calendar are national and internal, but the solar aspects of our calendar are international and external. Meaning when we think of like our first month is Nisan. Nisan is the first month of the internal Hebrew calendar. But Rosh Hashanah is the beginning of the solar year and the international calendar from a Hebrew perspective. So we, we think of Rosh Hashanah, you know, the first of Tishrei, we think of as the sixth day of creation, um, the day that humanity was created, uh, whereas Nisan is when the Jewish year starts. So uh, yeah, I, I think that it, it's that's besides the point. I think that I, I mean, I agree with you that we have we have over the course of our thousands of years come across and 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 been in dialogue with and just like any child as they grow has the the values and of the home that in which they're born but over time meets people learns from things and then their values get reflected in different practices and different shifts that occur through interactions with the outside world the the the, the, the human becomes 
unhealthy when they adopt the outside world without having that connected to their values. And that's what causes people to feel depression and disembodiment and rage and, and, and unhappiness. Yeah. And, you know, and, and I think that we're in that place right now where as a people over time, we've adopted so many different things that don't really connect with who we are. And it's causing us with all these dysfunctions <laughs> that we need to deal with by returning to our base as to what actually you know, we're made up of. Right. Although I think Rosh Hashanah does carry a feature of our colonization in that we sound the shofar at Musaf. You know, um, originally we would sound the shofar at Shachrit, but uh, the Romans once upon a time thought we were planning a revolt because the shofar wasn't just used in the yeah. Rosh Hashanah. The shofar was also something we would use in war. We would sound the shofar when we were about to attack. It was a way to uh, issue commands to the troops, you know, in the ancient Hebrew military structures. Yep. So the Romans thought we were attacking them. I guess it was an early minion and uh, they massacred a synagogue. And as a result of the Romans massacring a synagogue, we, from then until today, eliminated the sounding of the shofar at Shachrit on Rosh Hashanah and only do it at Musaf because Musaf was late enough in the day that the Romans wouldn't have expected us to attack them at that time. So I think part of the post-colonial conversation, just using this as an example, we, we would first of all have to acknowledge what happened, just know that story, what happened and what right. changed. And then there's a separate conversation whether or not we want to put that back. You know, we, we should have a conversation. Do we want to start sounding the shofar at Shachrit? on Rosh Hashanah earlier in the morning. There could be arguments for, arguments against. I think it's a it's a relatively benign conversation. I don't think the ramifications of it would really affect people in the same way that other similar conversations might. But to be aware of what happened to us, why we made the change we made, knowing that it was not cultural evolution or even us being in contact with other civilizations and, and picking things up that we think are good and could work and are conducive to our culture, but rather like something we change as a direct result of persecution and then having the conversation whether or not it's appropriate to put that back or leave it as is. Uh, and, and I think we, we need to have that conversation on a lot of things uh, alongside conversations about building, you know, structures that are unique to us that can help us, you know, yeah. rebuild our society in a healthy way. Uh, we, we haven't. I mean, the, in many ways, you know, I, I do a lot of work, um, you know, specifically with West Bank Jews and Palestinians. And it, it brings me into contact with a lot of different elements of Palestinian society. So e even when it comes to just the political maturity of these two societies, you know, it, it, it always embarrasses me to say that Palestinian society is so much more advanced and so much more ready for certain conversations than Israeli society is. That's very interesting. That's a very interesting. I, I'd love to learn more about that another time. I, I but I and I, I want to you know strengthen what you said, which is that I think that that not all things that are not from us are bad. Um, it, it's just a question of how we, you know, just like again, you know, as we grow as people, we learn from other people, and some of those things are 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 good, and that's fine, and that's you know, if if we go back to a more spiritual view on it, from my perspective. You know, we were all created in the image of the creator. You know, for us to to imagine that we were given, you know, all of the truth and everyone else was given all lies is just incorrect. You know, it's 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 not it's not correct. And so I think that that there is a there is a but we need to learn from a place of self-confidence. And and in this in this particular case, I think we all need to be open to the fact that 
and, and we're seeing it today with the amazing amount of polarization and different narratives that are flying across Israeli society, that truth is, is sometimes determined by political power and by uh, those who it serves. And, um, and, you know, over, over our years, you know, it's not, I'm not the only one to say it, the rabbi said it, you know, Sefer Dvarim, for example, is attributed to, uh, to Shafan, found a, found a scroll in the basement, brought it out and said, oh, this is the retelling. And, 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 you know, some people will say, nope, it was always there, five books of Moses. Other people will say, nope, that was just an attempt by a late, later uh, a Judean uh, king to justify changes in practice. You know, we have to be open to those conversations and recognizing that power and power dynamics have always affected how we think about truth over the course of our, our of our long and storied history. And and at the same time as being understanding that we will never have, you know, 100 uh, percent confidence in, 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 in what was recognize that that is in many ways besides the point as to how we build what will be. And I think that having the confidence to be able to have that conversation with a multiplex and varied understanding of the past, but with a commitment to building a future together, a future that reflects our values, is, that's the tension that, that I hope uh, we'll be able to live in uh, to bring the world to come. I think a good way to express this from our history is just we left Egypt with gold. Some of that gold went to build the Mishkan and some of that gold went to build the Golden Calf. We come back, especially today, we come back to our land from all sorts of different countries and cultures, you know, and, and societies. And we come back here with gold. Like you and I were both born and raised in New York City. We're New Yorkers. And we came back to this country with a bit of New York in us. Now, some of that gold from New York might be very conducive to building the society we want to build here. And uh, some of it might not. And I think that the question is, what's the uh, filtration mechanism? Like, how do we know what gold yeah. is the Mishkan and what gold is the golden calf? And I think for that, we need to really know who we are and what our mission That's is. Beautifully said. What, yeah. what is our meta narrative? I think yeah. really helps us to sift between what's conducive to achieving our function and what is not conducive to achieving our function. But the real question is, what's our function? And mm -hmm. I think that that's a lot of what is being debated today. Like, you know, you have some of Israeli society really just wanting to be part of the modern West. Um, I think Ehud Barak really expressed it best when he spoke of Israel as a villa in the jungle, you know, uh, as mm -hmm. if it's like outpost of Western civilization surrounded by uh, savages. Um, I think that's a mentality that, that's obviously very problematic, but I think there are a lot of Israelis who want to see themselves that way, that we are this like island of Western liberalism and blah, blah, blah. And then there are those who, who want a society that's really the uh, realization of our tefillot for thousands of years, you know, the rebirth of the kingdom of Israel uh, and all that that means. Um, and I think that the synthesis is really when we actually... Yes, we should be rooted in our identity and we should be true to ourselves and we should know who we are and we should definitely build a society that expresses those values and that identity, but plugged into the rest of the world, uh, plugged into the rest of the world in a healthy way that's not just healthy for us, but healthy for all of humanity. You know, I, I very much believe that the children of Israel came back to life in the modern age in order to help lead humanity into a post-capitalist world meaning that mm -hmm. the current uh, structures and ways of doing things 
that are dominant just don't work for humanity and are leading the whole world uh, towards catastrophe, whether we're talking about climate chaos, whether we're talking about the uh, endless wars, what's going on now in Ukraine, you know, all driven by profit. Mm -hmm. And uh, we can see that the United States today is an empire in rapid decline. It's not clear how much longer it's gonna, I mean, it's already being challenged as a unipolar superpower. And it's unclear what's going to be in the wake of the American decline. And I think yeah. that if we can get our act together, if we can figure out who we are and really think about what are the values that should be animating the society we create, what is the place of a non-Jew in that society, where can differences be hashed out? You know, I think your idea, by the way, of federation, of creating a way for all the different tribes of Israel today to kind of live according to their own ways and desires is good, but, but I think it requires also a layer that unifies us. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I agree with you. I agree with you. And I think that that's, and, and that's, I mean, in many ways, that's the conversation we can only have once we give people the security that we will not coerce them, mm -hmm. right? That's the thing that is so critical that we are lacking at this stage, I believe, which is that Haredim want to live their lives. They want to study their Torah. They don't want to be bothered. At the same time, they are either fully aware or their their representatives are fully aware that they're doing so because of the financial largesse and the security demands that are put on the backs of other people. Mm -hmm. Well, that didn't work for us when we were entering the land of Israel. It shouldn't work for us now. Right. You know, and we need to be able to have that conversation to say, we're not going to tell you how you run your affairs inside your homes. But listen, if you want us to be able to help you, you got to march out in front of us. You have to figure out what it is that you're going to be doing to contribute to the whole mm -hmm. out of a place of strength, not out of a place of weakness. Mm -hmm. And I think the same thing on the secular side in terms of people who are, uh, you know, committed to living lives that are international through through trade, through exchange, through uh, the, through through all of the beauty, in my opinion, that we've built as a as a touchstone for the world. Well, also, you know, that comes with obligations, but also that comes with an opportunity for us to be able to communicate our values with the rest of the world in which we're engaged. You know, and there, so there's there are all these puts and takes that that become available only once we stop the sense of coercion. And I'm feeling, and I don't know how you're feeling, but I'm seeing that every subgroup in Israel feels coerced in one way or another. Whether or not that reflects reality is a, is a conversation to be had, but, but everyone feels it. And so unless we start building the institutions that allow for people to feel safe in their, in their identity and then come to learn out of a place of strength, come to find dialogue out of a place of strength, I think that we're going to be, unfortunately, seeing the end of this third experiment, and we're going to have to bake a little bit more in, in, in exile until we can figure out how to actually work together towards our mission. Well, I certainly hope not. I, I'm confident that we're going to make this work. The question is how painful and how long will it take us? You know, what I found fascinating about your piece was also this acknowledgement. Um, I experienced it as coming from maybe because you oppose the judicial reforms or maybe because of the way you frame things, you know, the Zionists versus the theocrats, you know, Zionists being Yosef in this case and the theocrats being Yehuda and its satellite tribes. Um, 
I saw that there was an awareness that Yosef has until now been pushing its ideological paradigm on the rest of Israeli society, meaning the tribes are all able to do their own thing locally, but the glue that binds us was supposed to be the glue of Yosef. And that has been coercive for a lot of, whether we're talking about Mizrahim or Haredim or the national religious uh, Palestinians, that, that has been coercive to a certain extent. The question is now, are we just going to reverse that? And now you'll have the tribes of Yudan and Yisachar imposing their way of life and their values on the glue that unites all of society? Or um, are we going to find ways for us all to give each other space? and to be able to kind of develop independently, but with some shared layer of identity. I mean, I, I think that's really, you know, these layers of identity are very key for me because I think there's a layer of identity that we can share with Palestinians. Um, I think there's a layer of identity we can share with the entire region. There's a layer of identity that we can share with all of humanity, as long as we also have our particularist identities um, that we don't share. Meaning like, uh, I'm a Kohen, I know what, uh, what sub-tribe I come from, I know what tribe I come from. I, I'm also a Jew, I'm also a, an Israeli. Um, part of my identity is my family, part of my identity is my community, uh, part of my identity is my tribe, but part of my identity is Israeli society, and part of my identity is a Semitic region. Yeah. When we have those different layers of identity and, and we're able to appreciate that uh, identity doesn't have to be one-dimensional, then we're able to kind of on the one hand, do our own thing and live as we'd like to live ideally while still feeling part of this bigger collective that includes other people who are living a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. And by the way, I think I think that's one of the big mistakes that that we continue to make as a as a society, uh, you know, all of the different tribes is what you just said, which is that. You know, we're very quick to say when someone else is trying to coerce us, but we're not very quick to admit that we were coercing them. And that's one of the things that I think is um, without having a structure in place to allow for people to recognize the dignity of difference, as you know, the late uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs put it, without having those uh, that foundation to recognize that it is in our differences that we can contribute our unique perspective to the world and our unique energy to, to creation that we end up impoverishing the future. And I think that we, we, we need to build that foundation now. And, and that's one of the things that, you know, I, I am talking about, you know, the current situation here in Israel and, and the, the, the civil war that is, uh, that is already upon us, meaning, you know, we're, we're, we're deep in it and, you know, please God, it may not turn violent, but, you know, we're deep into a conflict right now. And, um, and and my only hope is that these are birthing pangs and that, that we are now going through a process of, of rebirth. You know, we've for 75 years, we've kind of, you know, germinated and developed. And now we're finally starting to get ready as a society of nearly 10 million people living here. Um, more if you count Palestinians that live among us. Um, you know, how do we how do we come out of this? How do we come out of this in a way that allows us to to build a a future that we can be proud of and that we will be proud of for the thousands of years to come? So when you say civil war, when you say we're already deep into a civil war, and you're talking about a cultural conflict between Yosef and Yehuda, or are you referring to something else? 
yeah, those are the titles that you would give it. I think that it's way more than Yosef and Yehuda. I think that there are many different tribal groups that are fighting one another here. Um, and I don't think that they're, you know, thank God, I, I don't think that they're violent as of yet, although we're seeing more and more signs of violence emerge. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think that this conflict is real and, and we can't, you know, we, we shouldn't we shouldn't use nice words about it. This is a real conflict. This is, there is hatred that is brewing. There is a sense of violence. You know, right now it's legal violence, but we know that law is violence. You know, a cherem is 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 a very violent act, and we're seeing cherems all over. You know, we're, we're we're seeing right now. I think that we are going through one of the more challenging moments of our history in recent memory. It's a transition. Yeah. Look, one of the metaphors I like uh, from the Tanakh is the transition from Shaul to David. Um, we can look at Shaul as Zionism. You know, Shaul, like you pointed out, a king like all other nations, was focused on the security of, of the Jewish people, the economy of the Jewish people, the unity of the Jewish people, but didn't necessarily have higher aspirations or a vision for what the kingdom of Israel should be. Um, David, who... I know you're not a. Yeah, that's why I'm laughing because I am. You're talking to the wrong guy when it comes to those metaphors. <laughs> right, right, right. But here's what it is: David is like, let's say, the Smoltrich voters. Okay, the those who are, you know, go <laughs> to the elite combat units and have a very clear ideological vision for what the state should be, based on our history, based on our identity, based on halacha. Um, they want to build a temple, but David cannot build the temple. Only Shlomo could build a temple. Shlomo is Hebrew universalism. And okay, Shlomo might share the identity of David, but he's focused outward. He's really focused on what are we here to give to humanity. And it's actually very interesting. If you look at the very last, when you look at the very last political act that David is recorded as doing, if you look at the end of Shmuel Bet, the, the second book of Shmuel, the second book of Samuel, one of the last things that David actually does before the transition to Shlomo is he acknowledges and tries to correct the crimes of Shaul against the Givonim. Okay? Mm. Um, that's interesting. I yes, never thought of it that, that way. That's what I personally see as necessary for us to be able to kind of move into this Shlomo stage. The David Jews, meaning not the, not the Tel Avivim, but the um, the Jews living out here in the West Bank, the Judeans, the Mitnachlim, we need to acknowledge the crimes of Zionism against the Palestinians and try to correct those. And I'm not sure that Shaul could do that. I think only David can do that. Because what, mm. what I often see happening with Shaul Jews, what I often see happening with the Yosef Jews, whatever metaphor we want to use here, um, when they confront what Zionism did to the Palestinians, they often just become anti-Zionists. Um, mm. But I think the Smotrich voter or the Ben Gvir voter or the Maoz voter, his Jewish identity is deeply rooted enough that he can acknowledge what Zionism did to the Palestinians and experience real empathy and actually try to correct it without losing his identity, without becoming anti and and I think that's what's needed at this point. Uh, not necessarily, but you know, most of our conversation here has been about what's needed between us, between the the people of Israel. Um, but I think in terms of um, this is one of the reasons why you know the piece work I'm involved with 
you know, focuses so much on those Jews, the Jews, you know, who live in the West Bank, vote for Smotrich, or don't vote at all because they're just like fed up with the system and want to replace it with something else. Um, because they're the ones whose sense of Jewish identity, I think, is strong enough and deep enough to be able to withstand knowing that we're not always the good guy, knowing that we've done some things wrong. And the truth is, I think for that side of the political map to be able to acknowledge it shouldn't be difficult. Like I often say to people, like to my neighbors, I say, listen, you you know, the same people who did the Saison and the same people who did the did the Otelena did the Nakba. Like, how is it so hard to accept? Mm. That's yeah. an interesting way to put it. You know, obviously I come from a different side of the of that history, but I but I, I very much acknowledge and and recognize the, the wars of the Jews and the the, the you know the the tragedies that befall others and, and you know I'm, I'm with you i think that's that's a very interesting perspective and, and refreshing no to hear perfect. no one's perfect i think what's no a, one's perfect we should be honest about who we are and what we want we should be honest about what we've done the mistakes we've made uh you know i think the the hasbra industry has done us a tremendous disservice by trying to create this really shallow framework of of, yep. of us being the good guy in a g-rated movie and then being the perpetual yep. You know, like it's not helpful. It's not helpful to us. It doesn't help us mature. It doesn't build any bridges or bridge any gaps because it, it makes it harder to have real conversations with those on opposing sides. Like at this point, I think we need to be really honest. And that's what I see David doing there, by the way. When I see David, it couldn't have been easy for him to really look at the crimes of Shaul against the Givonim. Um, and, and by the way, there's a lot in that story, meaning even the way in which Shaul pursues David and the way David responds to that, I think very much reflects the clash between, you know, the Zionists and the religious nationalists in Israeli society. Hmm. That's, that's an interesting. Yeah, I, 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 I definitely acknowledge that, meaning you know, David's not all, all bad. He's, he's definitely, you know, a, a complex figure. And one of the things I always appreciated about our confidence as a people was that even even those people that we thought were uh, not we thought that even those people that that we remember as being in direct connection with the creator we recognize their flaws right and i think that that's what, what you just said is a, is a is a beautiful thing you know we recognize that moshe couldn't enter the land of israel it didn't matter how much he sacrificed he screwed up and he took responsibility and and that's what people in power and positions of power need to do they need to recognize that they're not going to be perfect and they don't get everything they want and that's where I go back to this question of, you know, if you will make yourself a king, you know, whether or not, you know, we interpret that as when you make yourself a king or if you will make yourself a king, we have to restrict what that king, you know, can can for for, for himself and and what that person uh, can do with it. It's it, it all comes from the same basis that I think is such an important part of our tradition um, that that I hope will guide us in the years to come, which is to recognize the the fallibility of 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 the person and the importance of the community in which a person lives to allow for rebuke to allow for correction to allow for the situation within a larger set of 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 outcomes that are that should be good for the whole and by the way that's why i'm so troubled by what's happening today in israel is that that everyone is fighting for you know the whole the whole jackpot mm. and um, I don't think that there is uh, equivalence between the sides. I think that the people who have power bear the most responsibility. Um, but I do think that uh, um, that you know th that that we need to stop. We, we we need if we want to survive this, you know, what we need to do is stop. Both sides need to put down their weapons now, 
we need to go into a period in which we can have these conversations like the ones that the one that you and I are having and and we need to 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 come back at this from a place of values and, and desired outcomes as opposed to well I can do this because I have the votes or I can do this because I you know control the planes or whatever you know, whatever we want to put it well well that's a question I'm not really sure who has power I think one of the big mistakes that uh, Smotrich and Ben Gvir made is the assumption that because they won an election and formed a government they have power they didn't take power they don't control the money in this country they don't control the media in this country they don't control the security forces in this country like i i don't know um if there is really a constitutional crisis and you know the courts are striking down laws that the government and the Knesset are passing in order to curtail the court's powers you know who does the army listen to like i don't i don't know who has power and who doesn't have power at this point yeah uh, I don't I don't know either and that's a scary thing you're right it's you know it's it's literally going into a full on confrontation and for what reason you know what good will come out of it in the end let's say that they do get to have their judges okay then what you want to have judges that judge over a a country in in bloody warfare or a country in which tens if not hundreds of thousands of people leave the people who pay the most taxes and who serve in the most elite units like what 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 good that comes to you know um to to imagine that god is on your side is a folly that has happened to us throughout our history we thought god was on our side when when whole yeshuvim were destroyed right we thought god was on our side when our women and children were taken as as slaves and our men were slaughtered you know we we made the mistake of thinking god was going to step in and fix our our mistakes time after time after time and we need to stop imagining that that we know god's will the kadosh baruch Hu is on our side but uh, what is best for us isn't always what we think is best for us <laughs> okay that's a very diplomatic answer on your part i appreciate that no meaning that it's ultimately what's happening to us is happening for us and for the good and for what we're supposed to become and even these tensions today are are really hopefully as you said you know taking us somewhere better and and will you know we're going to confront contradictions in our society and in our ideologies that we haven't confronted before uh, and we need to do that in order to move forward um but it could be a painful process right I, I just hope we can we can blunt it by by thinking of it as a process as opposed to a game that can be won well th- this has been a fascinating conversation but i'd like to get a little practical on this you know on just like the current you know we, we've kind of danced around it and and kind of uh peripherally addressed the current crisis in israeli society but you know you and i are probably on opposite sides of it for the most part i support the judicial reforms i have a couple reservations but for the most part i, I think they're necessary uh you oppose them if i'm not mistaken mm-hmm. so i just want to give you a, a, an opportunity you know the last episode i did was really a deep dive of our judicial history the basic laws Aaron Barak's revolution what are these new proposals like the proposed reforms uh, in detail who supports them who opposes them and why I'd like to just give you a chance to to express what you oppose about these specific reforms, what makes you nervous, what do you think needs to be stopped? Because I don't know if that's a view that a lot of my listeners are familiar with or have been exposed to. Beyond the like scaremongering, threat to democracy, BB's going to become an I, I I don't expect that from you, but I mean really, like what what about these reforms are? Well, let's let's start let's start with uh, kind of a, a sense of shared reality, which may or may not exist, you know, for your listeners, for you. But I believe that until the moment of this government's start, we had twenty years of 
right-wing rule one way or the other. Bibi was prime minister. He put out together coalitions this way, that way. The Haredim were almost always part of it. There was a one year, not even, where there was a government that included many right-wing elements, some left-wing elements, very central, thought of things in a bit of a different way, but 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 generally did not do things that were socialist in their you know economic sense or um, or uh, did not leave the uh, the the West Bank, um, you know, Yudan and, Shem- and Shemron and the other side. So, you know, we've had about two decades where we've uh, lived under a government that over time has made judicial reforms. And I want to be, I think that most people forget that Gidon Saar, who was a Likud minister, made reforms that Yeret Shaked then used in order to increase the representation of more conservative voices on the Supreme Court. And over the course, since uh, many people, you know, talk about the Aron Barak revolution as this kind of travesty and and that, and and what have you, but we need to remember that the that before the Aron Barak uh, years, things were not great. Meaning, from the beginning of the state until around until the the the, the rise of the Likud, we had a single party rule. And yes, I was benefiting from that as a person. But I recognize that single party rule is a bad thing. Mapai, Ben-Gurion's party, um, did whatever it wanted and it created a, a, a political monoculture and economic monoculture that did not benefit the state of Israel. When Aaron Barak um, uh, began the judicial revolution, it was in, in many ways a reaction to the uh, the, the economic crisis of the time, the changes that were happening in Israel. And since then, if you look at any measure of Israel's prosperity, its ability for growth, its sense of freedom, its sense of happiness, everything improved. And so from a from 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 my historical perspective, we've been doing all right for the past 40 years. Israel's become a world leader in technology. It's become a economic hotspot. It's become a place that people want to live. People are returning back to Israel because of this sense of security that the government can 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 function in its own, and the courts will protect our individual liberty. What concerns me about these reforms is that it centralizes power under a single body, and that body currently is controlled by a relatively small number of people. And I just don't believe that centralization of power is a good thing. And I think that there are many ways to get to representation. There are many ways to get to diversity of views. There are many ways to get to a, a conversation about the values and and the uh, and the and the, the implementation of those values in new laws that that are are ruim, that we should have them. We should have we should have these conversations. It is it is right and good to talk about the lack of mizrahim or the lack of of uh, religious people or the lack of aravim that are part of the. Uh, of of our judicial system and and it's right and good to talk about what the courts should be dealing with and should not be dealing with but i think that's that that the reforms as they were presented as a package and as we understand the thinking behind them and the philosophy behind them take away the protection of the people from the power of the government and whether it is mapai or whether it is likud for me is irrelevant what the most important thing is that we keep a strict separation between our liberty and the powers of government, and that's why I think that these reforms need to be need to be stopped, 
immediately. We need to go into a, a longer term conversation as to, as to the values we want to live. And we need to be able to build up a, uh, a, a more diverse body of representatives that, uh, that allow for the, the different identities that make up modern Israel. Yeah, I, I think the problem is that a lot of people in this country, um, certainly Jews in the West Bank, but I think a lot of the weaker sectors of society more broadly, you know, also in the periphery, uh, have looked at the judicial system as the violator of their rights and, and not, you know, look, these reforms appear to be aiming to do two different things. There's number one, empowering the uh, Knesset over the judiciary and also diversifying the Supreme Court, like having, you know, like uh, stopping it from just being, you know, like a monolithic club of, you know, Ashkenazi Tel Aviv elites. Um, I don't know if both are necessary. I don't know if it's necessary to empower the Knesset over the courts and change the makeup of the court. I think one or the other is probably enough. But exactly. Also, but, but, but let's let's yeah. agree there. I agree with you. I agree with you that the courts look. First of all, let's recognize that a process has been put in place since Gidon Sal and the last right wing government that did reforms that were broadly accepted by society, right? There were no protests about it. Everyone said, "Oh yeah, you know that's right." And when Ayel when Ayel Chaked brought in more uh, conservative justices, people said, "Yeah, you know that that makes sense. That's that's the right way to go." And so I think that that you're right. Like we should be bringing in more justices that represent more streams and and the diverse I mean that that's correct and and were we to have started there were we to have said you know what our goal here is to ensure that everyone's heard I think we'd be in a very different place today but I think that that what's underneath this is the is the uh the arrogance of power it's the it's the desire for control and that's what concerns me and I think that any person that um, that you know puts their their ability to control others at the top of their list of things that they need to do. For me, that's a that's a that's a red light. That's a warning light. We're talking about a, a sector of society that's experienced itself as an oppressed group in society until now. You know, we're talking we're talking about what was the Orange Camp during the disengagement from Gaza. We're talking about the, we're talking about the like ideological national religious community or you know, what, Yehuda, David, whatever, um, who finally have electoral power. But you know that that's all lies and stories they're telling you. Bibi Netanyahu is, uh, and Yariv Levine oppressed. You, you make the distinction in your piece between uh, the theocrats and... What yes, that's correct. You're right. You're right. If I'm talking about the, the, the large camps that are supporting it, yes, I agree with you. There is a... There is a uh, absolutely. I completely recognize it. So, look, on the one hand, even something like adding conservative justices to the bench, from my perspective, is not really solving the problem because it's still westernized judges some might be liberal some might be conservative but it doesn't make me you know wh whether we're talking about the values of the liberal west or the conservative west the democratic party or the republican party i think both are in the way of israel finding itself and being what we need to become right uh, look if, if you were to tell me counter proposal leave the court alone but 50 percent of the bench can be dayanim some will be Mizrahim from Shas, some will be, you know, rabbis from the West Bank, some will be Ashkenazi Haredim, and they'll be sitting on the bench next to Esther Hayut 
and uh, and her friends, and we'll have a court that everybody will feel represented by. That would be an interesting counterproposal, much more than conservative justices. I'd be much more interested, honestly, I'd be much more interested in seeing uh, Gdole Torah on the bench than uh, conservative justices. Because I think we are talking about two different camps. And I think, you know, when you use the word theocrat, I find it a little bit reductionist in that the Jewish people kind of predate all these social constructs like race and religion and nationalism and, you know, all these social constructs that are relatively new. I'd say the closest thing to what we are is a civilization, kind of like the Aztecs. You know, we have a national component and we have a territorial component and a legal component and a spiritual component and a ritual component, but we're more than the sum of those parts. And I think part of what happened to us, perhaps part of our colonization, is at a certain point in history, Jews in Europe began to self-identify as a religion, right? Like we were offered inclusion in France and in Germany, but at the expense of our identity. You know, before that, we can say that we were Palestinian refugees determined to go home, believing we're going to go home, believing we're going to rebuild our civilization, saying it three times a day until we get to the French Revolution and the Haskalah, the Jewish Enlightenment, and we're offered whiteness and we're offered inclusion and we rebrand ourselves. Now we're Germans with a religion called Judaism or Frenchmen with a religion called Judaism. And it's in the wake of that that we come back here. And a lot of these conversations are being framed in the language of a religion called Judaism. And yeah, if that's what we are, if we're a religious group, then I would accept that label. But I think, you know, my Torah doesn't just tell me how to be a spiritual person or, or follow laws or perform rituals. It also tells me how to structure a government. It also tells me how to, uh, how to treat the non-Jew in my society. It also tells me how to establish an economic system. And I don't mean that in a narrow dogmatic sense. I think that there are very deep conversations that need to take place in order to apply some of these values to the 21st century. But I don't think our banks should be charging interest. I don't think our weapons companies should be selling arms to human rights violators. I think it would be great if we had an economic structure that would wipe out everybody's debt every seven years. Right. Look, I'm with I'm I'm with you on 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 almost everything that you said. Um, the, the only definition or distinctions I would make are that yes, with Ashkenazi culture, that's definitely true, uh, or I agree with that analysis. I think that there are Jews all over the world that had different experiences of their identity and how that identity mixed and matched and interacted with with the cultures in which they lived, and which then brought those identities back to Israel. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's a clash here in Israel also between the Ashkenazim who are, you know, who, who are uh, more uh, prone to uh, uh, a certain uh, understanding of the way Judaism governs their, their living in the land versus the Mizrahim who uh, there are, uh, there are distinctions. Uh, they're not, it's not homogenous, you know, and that's, and that's where I come to this, this aspect of, of, of the, the, the dignity of difference, the power in diversity. And I, I, I think that there, there's something to be said to this question of the role of Dianim um, in, in society and, and, and the question of the interaction between the, the, the different approaches that we have to law and what, that, what, what the implications of that are. Because Hebrew law, you know, Mishpat Ivri, is part of the Israeli judicial system. It's just never really been thought of as a, uh, as a, as a partner in it. You know, right. it's not and, considered, and so, considered like a cute little right. operation. Well, I don't know about cute little, but like, so for example, from the Mishpat Ivri perspective, 
um, you know, Arya Deri should never be able to run for any public office again. I mean, you know, Torah is very, very clear that you have someone who is, uh, who is Mushchat, you know, found to be Mushchat, and they're out. They're gone. You can't trust them again. You just can't. They can live their lives. They can be private people, but you don't put the, the trust of the public in them again. And, and you can say the same thing for quite a number of Haredi leaders who have been, you know, Askanim, people who, you know, you know, took this bribe, took that bribe. We know they took bribes. Some of them were, uh, were, were brought to trial. Some of them were, were uh, dealt with within their own communities. But, but because they, they're playing with the Goyish law of the state of Israel, no one really, you know, the, the communities are willing to, to front them because they know how to, how to play dirty. I worked for three members of Knesset in my life. And guys that I would, I could say are honest guys, like honest people who all had very short stints in Knesset, maybe as a result of their honesty and unwillingness. Yeah, unfortunately, right? The yeah. problem is, and, and I think this is, you know, the, the way I see it, I'm not I'm not trying to defend Derry or anybody else, but I, but I think that part of the problem is the system, and I'm not sure it was always that way. Maybe under, you know, Mapai rule, it was in some ways cleaner uh, because it was just, you know, a dictatorship of Ben-Gurion. But, exactly. uh, but I think the way our political system developed, the corruption became so much part of the political culture. Yeah, I'm with you. And I'm with you. it's hard for me to blame the Haredim who are kind of just like thrown into that system. Look, they, they adapted to it. They, if, if politics are a sport, the Haredim are the best athletes. Yeah, um, they really they, they really figured it out. But but I think, you know, when the game is being played a certain way and everybody's doing it. And by the way, this may be I don't know about today, but, you know, certainly a few years ago, I would have said that this distinguishes the Haredi politicians from the national religious politicians. The national religious politicians would on principle try to beat Sadiqim in the political system and therefore be ineffective. Whereas the team would just, like you said, they look at it as a, okay, these are the rules of the game. This is what everybody's doing. We're going to do this too. And they push their agenda and they win. So it made them effective. But I think, to be fair, they do get called out a lot more. There's much more of a magnifying glass on them. I'm not sure that the level of political corruption uh, is greater among the Haredi politicians than among any of the oh, other I mean, we put we put prime ministers and presidents in jail right i mean for for corruption so no i mean i i, I think that there's i'm not saying that it's a unique thing to the haredim at all by any means i'm just saying that you know <laughs> according to torah law those people shouldn't be our representatives they, they shouldn't be in public office they just shouldn't right i mean can we agree on that said, part i think the deeper problem you already said they're not relating it to it as a real jewish system they're they're relating right. to it as like the polish parliament the sem that they're just like competing yep they want from uh, and i by the way that shifting and you know this is probably an important uh at the very least an important footnote to this conversation as the haredim become more and more part of our society and they have to because of the fastest growing population between the river and the sea there's no way economically they could sustain themselves as they were they have no choice but to be pushed into israeli society and what happens when Haredi Torah meets nationalism, the result is Kahanism. That yeah. is, that's just what happens when Haredi Torah meets nationalism or yeah. national consciousness. So I, I think one of the things we're seeing, even though the, the Haredi numbers continue to grow, the Ashkenazi Haredi party stays relatively at the same place every election. Right. A lot of the younger voters are going to Ben Gvir. Meaning yeah. a lot of Yisachar, the younger Yisachar tribe is becoming Shimon. 
and that's something we need to, you know, when we talk about moving forward, uh, which is really the core thrust of your piece, you have to also take Israel's trajectory into consideration, which I think you do. Like you warn that if we don't have this conversation now, it's going to be forced on us within the next 10 years. You know, you make that point. You know, that identity, that Shimon identity or that Kahanist identity, I don't have a problem with the identity. Like assuming we don't have a conflict with the Palestinians, I think that identity is fine. Um, yeah. Some of the political conclusions I might disagree with, but I don't think the identity is necessarily problematic. I think there's a place for the tribe of Shimon, just like the tribe of Dan, the tribe of Shimon has like an important place within Am Israel. Um, Yaakov wanted Levi and Shimon separated and dispersed, uh, just the way I want uh, salt and pepper separated and dispersed on my food. You know, like I, I, I think that the- I don't know. If I'm not, I don't know if I'm with you on that one, but but I but I hear you on everything else that you're saying, and I you know I I think that. Um, but I want to go back to this issue of of the concentration of power, which I think is never good, and I think that that's why people who support this this legislation out of a desire for increased rep- representation are going to be are being sold a bill of goods. I think that that the you know that they are using that that Bibi and Levine and the the the, the oligarchy that's that's emerging is using people is using the excuse of representation. I mean, just look at look at what happened in Israel since ben, since uh, Menachem Begin. You know, Menachem Begin was able to to uh, verbally um, champion the, the the plight of the Mizrahim. Mm-hmm. And how much has Likud really done in order to bring Mizrahim into its leadership and ensure that Mizrahim were on the bench for all the years that Likud was able to to lobby for for their betterment, mm-hmm. right? And how how much has Likud really done? And and unfortunately, I think there's a there there are cynical ploys by people who love power, and that's what's happening with this judicial reform. And I think that that if if people really care about diversity, if they re, if really what they want is to have their the the uh, their their voices taken into account, then there are way better ways to get it than to try to have a single party grab all of the uh, the, the the levers of power and then do with it whatever it, it would wish. Yeah, I, I guess you know from this side it looks like the Supreme Court has been the concentrated power in the country since the 1990s. I mean that that's the way we no matter how many elections we win we just don't have power. That's just the feeling on the street over here. So I think balance is the key, though. Like, uh, I, I don't think it's empowering the legislative branch over the judicial branch. I, I don't think the judicial branch should continue to be empowered over the legislative branch either. Um, to be honest, I think the Levine-Rotman reforms were meant as just the opening of a negotiation. I suspect that that was just their first offer. They assumed somebody would negotiate with them. Nobody did. They didn't expect this level of backlash. We need to look behind what's actually happening here. We have, we have a, a series of powerful people who are seeking to get more power, and and you know the reforms on their own, I don't think make sense strategically, tactically, from a value base. I just don't think they make sense. If if the outcome we want to achieve is a diverse Israel in which all people feel that they have a voice in their personal destiny and the national destiny respect the conversation, are, are able to talk about where we want to be and not just where we were, then these reforms are the worst possible thing that we can do. And the only way for us to move forward as a unified people, even you know, independent in our diversity, is by stopping and then having a deep conversation. And, and I think that we have a great opportunity now to do that because the, the street has woken up. And the, the question now is, 
what are we going to do with that energy? Are we going to use this fire to burn down the house or are we going to use this fire to cook a meal we can all sit around and, and converse around? All the reforms are problematic. You wouldn't support like more elected officials being involved with selecting Supreme Court justices. Like you think they should be appointing their own successors and remaining. Well, well they're, they're not. I mean, they're they so been. one right now, there is no right now, according to again, the Gidon Sal reform that, that has been in place now for years has it that you have to have seven out of nine so that no group has a majority, but every group can stop some going forward. So every person is a consensus candidate. And that's how Ayel Chaked was able to bring a number of justices onto the bench that represent different views in Israel. Now, do I think that one group should be able to um, to, uh, to determine unilaterally who should be a justice? No, I, I actually I actually like the idea that people need to come to consensus. And, and I think that if, if what we want to do is ensure that we have people representing different segments of Israeli society, that that should be the target. We should be, we should be coming together to say we want people representing these different, we should be very open about that, you know, instead of thinking about it from a perspective of power, because in the end, we know what happens with, with positions of power, right? I mean, we see it now with Bibi trying to appoint someone to be the head of the National Statistics uh, Board. Right, he's doing it because that's uh, his friend. That's what he's trying to do. People do that in positions of power. You know, even people that are, even David made mistakes, and here we have, you know, Bibi making a mistake. In my opinion, I hopefully also in in yours and in your listeners, that sometimes people in power appoint people that they owe favors to. We don't want that to happen. We we want to make sure that people in power can't just pay back favors by putting people into, into positions of of power. We want people to be able to govern by consensus. So if if what we want to achieve through that is representation of Israel's different demographic groups and perspectives, that should be the mission of the committee. And, and we should be able to set guidelines. You know, if we started there, if we said, look, we want to make sure that a certain number of people come from each of the tribes, mm -hmm. and it's your job to make that happen, then they'll find the consensus candidate. And and the, the the people that are on on the coalition side will say will say no to anyone that they think is not right, and the people on the on the uh, the civil society side will no to every person who's not right, and the people who are on the justice side will say no to every person that they think lack the necessary credentials to be judges. And and we've seen that they have said yes again and again and again to conservative justices that sit on the bench that represent Mizrahim, that represent Aravim, that represent Midnachlim. But yes, we need more. We need more. I am with you that we need more. This is just not the way. So in, in your vision for a federation here, would each mm. sector have its own Supreme Court? Or would there be one Supreme Court over the entire, like a centralized Supreme Court for the entire nation? I think that's a conversation that we should be having. Uh, you know, I, I have, of course, my, my perspective on it, but I, I recognize my limitation. Right. So we at the Vision Movement are very focused on really trying to identify the goals of Jewish liberation for this chapter of history, meaning Zionism did incredible things, revived the Hebrew language, ingathered exiles, declared a state, created the infrastructure for a state, then declared a state. Now the question is, what are the goals today? You know, in our movement, there are people who've identified reconciliation with the Palestinians as an objective of Jewish liberation today. And I do believe that our liberation and Palestinian liberation is very much intertwined at this point. I, freedom from the United States, uh, decolonizing Jewish identity, but you're really putting forward another objective that I think is worth really thinking about, and that's creating new structures for our society 
that can actually accommodate our ideological diversity while keeping us unified. Am I saying that correctly? Does that? Yeah, that that that's right. I think that we need, need to return to a sense of confidence in our shared purpose and use that confidence to enable our diversity to to express itself through dialogue. So I'm challenging myself here because I really I had seen this as on a large scale on a national level we're witnessing a transition from Shaul to David and the people what I would consider a vanguard who are already David need to start transitioning to Shlomo like that and you know as I said to you the way I thought that we can do that is by really acknowledging what Zionism did to the Palestinians what Shaul did to the Givonim but this other perspective that I think is equally compelling is that no Israel as this tribal tapestry um, needs to figure out a way to create space for us all to be able to live the lives we want to live to all live according to the structures that we believe fit us but in a way that we're able to remain a single nation united and I think that's a conversation that could grow out of this clash like the tensions in society today could give birth to this yeah. If we were to, I don't know if this is already happening, but if we were to create some kind of forum um, where, let's say, I don't know, between five and ten representatives of each tribe were able to come together and have these discussions in a real way and, and disagree on a ton of things, but agree on some things, hopefully, would you be able to provide a short list of people who you think should represent your tribe? Uh, I, well, uh, that's a very good question. I, the, what I'm working on now is to begin that work on the municipal level okay. so that we can have those people emerge from the different regions of Israel mm -hmm. out of the understanding that we're we're going to have to explore the uh, the differences and distinctions between regional and ideological identities mm -hmm. so yes i think that that's the process that we're now that the the work that i'm doing as a volunteer um and and hoping to kind of to grow over the course of the, this coming year is is going to result in, which is a, a national assembly uh, that is a a, 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 a moshav, uh, a ability of people to to come together from the different um, uh, from the different uh, edges of Israel, um, in order to have that conversation, which is what is what what is the Israel that we want to live in? What are the institutions that will enable us to? continuously and consistently have conversation and and moderate between uh, the things that we want and, and and ensure the things that we need. So what would you think about transitioning to a participatory democracy? I, I think that that's one model that is that has come up a few times that I'm, I'm very much uh, I, I'm very interested in learning more about, you know, I, I've never I never really delved into the intricacies of transitioning towards mm -hmm. a more participatory democracy. Um, I'm very interested in a whole host of uh, of, of different. Um, I wouldn't say necessarily democratic. I think that I think that, and this goes back to our our initial conversation. I think that that even the very term democratic is not the right term, right? I mean, we, we need to get to a place where we're. We, we one of the things I've always kind of wrestled with is this idea of a Jewish and democratic state, where I I believe that. If you want to call it Judaism, I, you know, I, I, I more think of it as Torah Israel, you know, that Judaism is inherently respecting of the individual's rights and liberties and thinks of the individual 
as differently in a, in a different way than democracy thinks of the, of the individual. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that that by adopting the term democracy and, and adopting the idea of liberalism, uh, we are uh, necessarily creating a tension that is is sometimes challenging for us to bridge. But um, but but for right now, they're 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 crutches for us as we learn to to walk again. And so, um, you know, whether it's participatory democracy, whether it's other types of more anarcho-syndicalism, um, there are many different ways, whether it's, you know, it, it's more uh, community-led uh, regional assemblies. And I, I've seen many different models floated. And I think that it's through the dialogue between people who are authentically representing who they are without, without needing to make uh, um, apologies. Um, but at the same time committed to a shared future. I think that through that dialogue, we'll be able to develop a, uh, a system that works for us. I think you're right. I think for the most part, the word democracy has been used as a synonym for westernization in Israeli society. Like it's, yep. it's juxtaposed with Jewish state. Like we want to, when they, people say democratic state, what they really mean is like a Hebrew speaking America. Yeah. And yeah. I think that, you know, for me, democracy is just about empowering people to be able to influence the structures they live under. And right. I think that uh, a participatory democracy is actually a very Jewish model. Like if you look at the captains of 10 model and uh, right. for example, <laughs> not really Jewish. It's more of a Midianite model that Moshe was <laughs> Moshe adopted. Right. Which which is interesting, isn't it? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but but I think that's a model that could suit us. A country yeah. as ours, you know, if, if I were to get together with nine other people on my mountain, Sunday night for like a town hall meeting and discuss everything from yep. defense and, and foreign affairs to road safety and schools. Um, and then let's say I become the captain of 10. I go to a, a second yep. meeting Monday night with nine other captains of 10s and so on and so forth until somebody goes to Knesset. Uh, that means that person would have to go back to all his meetings and um, say what he did in Knesset, be recalled on the spot and replaced or yep. continue as the captain. Uh, and you would have people having maximum influence over how they live in their community, um, but obviously sharing influence with all the other communities over what happens at the national level. Um, Absolutely. So I'm I think totally that, that. That, that's something that could work. But anyway, we, we've already been speaking a long time and uh, there's only so much our listeners could take. Um, <laughs> well, I appreciate the conversation. Thank right. you very much for the opportunity. This has been a fascinating conversation. Um, I would love to uh, find ways that we can collaborate on. on I, I think there's a lot to talk about and I, I'm hoping that we'll find ways to work together to kind of accommodate this shift that is clearly taking place in Israeli society right now. Amen. Uh, so where can where can listeners find your work more about your ideas uh it's a very good question um so i i post on a lighthouse.substack.com that's more more my kind of jewish uh, uh political thought uh, my more uh business side is on on ariel beery at medium um and uh i'm always open to conversations i i appreciate very much the opportunity and uh, and hope us all that's Lacha in this chapter to come. Ariel Berry, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Thank you. I just like to take this opportunity to thank all those who support the show and keep it free and widely available. And of course, listeners should feel welcome to join them. You can contribute to making this show happen. 
by going to visionmag.org or visionmovement.org and clicking donate on the menu bar up top. This show is completely listener funded and we definitely want it to stay that way. And if you're somebody who wants to support our work, but is not in a position to contribute financially, you can help us by sharing this episode and all episodes of our various podcasts, giving it a positive rating and review. That really does help us spread these ideas to a wider and wider audience. And anyone interested in checking out the show notes of this episode can go to visionmag.org backslash the next stage 95.